All right. If you have your Bibles, get to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 15 through 19. Ruth is going to read it in Spanish and in English. Go ahead, Ruth. Amen. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of those one whom who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, I have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. ¿Qué pues? ¿Pecaremos porque no estamos bajo la ley, sino bajo la gracia? En ninguna manera. No sabéis que si os sometéis a alguien como esclavos para obedecerle, sois esclavos de aquel a quien obedecéis, sea del pecado para muerte o sea de la obediencia para justicia. Pero gracias a Dios que aunque eras esclavos del pecado, habéis obedecido de corazón aquella forma de doctrina a la cual fuisteis entregados y libertados del pecado, vinisteis a ser siervos de la justicia. Hablo como humano por vuestra humana debilidad, que así como para iniquidad presentéis vuestros miembros para servir la inmundicia y la iniquidad, así ahora para santificación presentad vuestros miembros para servir a la justicia. Amen. 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 Now I'm going to read it in slang terms. What's up, y'all? <laughs> uh, before we dive into... Uh, the word this morning, uh, I, got some, I got some good news, and uh, you guys are going to be really, really, really excited when uh, we present this news. Uh, we are rolling out the new Bethel logo. Come on, give it up for the new Bethel logo. You guys didn't sound excited. There it is right there. There it is. Something to marvel at, huh? You guys like it? Do you, do, uh, you see what they did there? You see the, you see the B and the C? That's right. Christ needs to be in the center of your life like that. Yeah, that's good. All right, take it away. Uh, all of you guys are going to get uh, stickers before you leave. Uh, you're going to get Uber stickers. We're starting a, a Buber, uh, Bethel uh, drivers. Um, and so make sure that you get your sticker uh, before you leave. And put it in your, uh, and make sure you put it in your front window. Uh, that's going to secure a parking spot for you every Sunday. So make sure that you get it. No, we really do have stickers, though, so. Anyways, all right, moving on. On August 31st, y'all done with y'all giggles? Y'all done with the giggles? All right, cool. On August 31st, 1962, a group of young African Americans involved in the Civil Rights Movement traveled to the Sunflower County in Mississippi to attempt to register to vote. They were denied and returned to the bus under the discouraging darkness of discrimination, says Jamar Tisby. Traveling back, undoubtedly shaken with fear and disheartened in despair, one brave young lady started to sing. 
This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And everyone joined in the song, and they were strengthened to keep on going. And just a little bit longer, who was this young lady? Fanny Lou Hamer. John Tisby goes on to say, Sister Hamer was born on October 6, 1917, in the ugly world of sharecropping as the youngest of 20 children. That's a lot of kids. As sharecroppers, her family endured many trials due to this new form of slavery dressed in the wardrobe of partnership. Despite the lack of opportunity and education in the midst of daunting obstacles, Hamer would go on to be one of the most influential civil rights figures. She dedicated her life's work to the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. Over her career, she endured much suffering, but continued to let her light shine in a dark place. Celebrated for her involvement in the civil rights movement, her greatest contribution is the model she gave on the Christian life. A Christian life in suffering. As the Apostle Paul shared, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Underline that in your Bible. Fannie Lou was deeply educated in the school suffering. Touching on her civil rights work, one author noted, such bravery came at a high price for Hamer. She was fired from her job, driven from the plantation. She called home, arrested, shot at, and beaten so bad in a Mississippi jail that she suffered permanent kidney damage. She knew she was called to suffer for the cause of Christ. We live in a day that is increasingly hostile to the Christian gospel. As Karen Ellis noted, we are moving from being American Christians to realizing that we are Christians in America. And we are realizing we are aliens in a strange land, and that means living in the context of suffering. And there will be horrible things done and said to us, but we can know, as with Fannie Lou, that our suffering has been granted to us. And if our suffering has been granted to us by God, we know that it will be used for his glory and the good of others. Friends, what is it about the Christian that enables us to endure suffering? What in the world would enable black Christian slaves to sing in the midst of their suffering, producing rich Negro spirituals? And what would cause guys like William Tyndale to embrace the flames instead of retiring his pen from translating scripture? And why would Paul say in the book of Acts, but I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the 
the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is this light in our souls? Even when we are engulfed by darkness, then our thirsts are quenched. Even when we endure daunting tasks, how do we make sense out of our joy that is still intact when the smoke clears? What is this joy in our souls, Christian? What is this joy? This increasing joy. Why do we continue to strive to choose Christ over our own sins? What is it? Friends, what I believe and want to make plain today is that these Christians had concluded that their lives were not their own they had concluded that their lives were not their own, but to Christ they belong. To Christ they belong. In our text today, Paul wants to articulate theologically what these saints knew experientially, that all of us who have been united to Christ are slaves of Christ. Let me say that again. All of us who have been united to Christ are slaves of Christ. Friends, your life is not your own. Paul wants and needs us to understand that when a Christian is called to Christ, he or she is not called to sin or to live their life any way they please. And why would Paul need to explain this? Well, for one, many had interpreted Paul's teaching on grace as a freedom to sin. But Paul was no antinomian. What's that? An antinomian, as uh, one theologian puts it, one who is opposed to the law or one who is a complete libertine, one who feels he or she should have no restraints now that they are Christians. And we can relate to that this morning. Got Jesus, got my sin. The best of both worlds. I get to sin and I get to go to heaven. That's a deal. No, it doesn't work that way. And I said before, we treat God's grace like the mother who throws a Chuck E. Cheese party for her son or daughter. And what do the kids get when they get there? They get 10 free tokens. And I tell my kids, after those tokens are up, don't come to me for more tokens because you're not getting any more. Use your tokens wisely. And so they want to use it wisely. And we think that we can use grace as 10 tokens that we have to use wisely. I'm going to turn up tonight, one token. I'm going to do something else later on, one token. Okay, I got eight tokens left. I got to slow down. I can't go out with y'all tonight because I only got eight tokens left. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. We know Paul was combating this kind of thinking because of the question that is raised in verse 1 of chapter 6. Look at it. Shall we continue in sin? That's quite the question. Shall we continue in sin? This rhetorical question is for all those who reason that because a person was saved out of sin by God's grace, that person could go on sinning after salvation. 
because God is gracious and will forgive me. The man upstairs will forgive me. Paul's reaction was what? God forbid. Why is this absurd to you, Paul? What we have been learning in summary, church, is this. The Christian is in union with Christ. He shares in Christ's death to sin and his resurrection to life. God has broken the power of sin in the Christian life. God has broken the power of sin in the Christian life. God has broken the power of sin in the Christian life. That's worth celebrating. Broken the power of sin. It remains but no longer reigns. So the true trick Christian cannot live a life of habitual repeated sin although he or she does do acts of sin we learned that in our bible study last night i encourage you i mean last wednesday encourage you to come to that when jesus died for our sins we died to our sin let's say it together when jesus died for our sin we died to our sin what God has done in us and on one level is incomprehensible. I'm studying Romans 6, and some of this I can't even wrap my mind around. But it is glorious. God has broken the power of sin in our lives. However, up to this point, Paul has only fought half of the theological battle. He has defeated the antinomian camp, but Paul is a skilled theological boxer, and he sees another opponent coming from his corner. And this corner, and coming from the corner, is what we like to call a legalist. A legalist is one who wants to put the Christian back under the Mosaic law for salvation. That's justification. In the legalist also wants to put the Christian living back under the law, which is called sanctification. He would say a person has to keep the law or be a good boy or good girl to get saved and to remain saved. The legalist says that in order for you to remain saved, you better keep walking that straight line. He adds work to the system of God's grace. Do you remember that old illustration, the ladder going up to heaven? And the legalist would say we have to climb up the ladder in order to get back to God, do good things so that God will accept you. But the Bible says that instead of us going up to God, God came down to us. And I'm so glad that he came down to earth for me. We were in the dumpster when he found us. And he did dumpster diving and pulled us out of our sin in our mess. I know some of you. Don't know what I'm talking about because you've always been filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. You came out with a cross on your shoulder. Your birthmark is the shape of a cross, so we're not going to mess with you. Why must Paul prepare to defend the gospel against legalists? Because of what he said in verse 14. You would think that Paul is picking fights. Paul, cut it out. Look what, uh, just look at verse 14. Since you are not under law but under grace. Now watch that very closely. Since you are not under law, but under grace. They're like, hold it right there, buddy. We got you now. We see what you're trying to do. Paul, if people are not under the law, then they are not accountable to anything. 
This inevitably leads to lawless living, right? Remember earlier in Romans, they fought with him about the necessity of the law for justification. But now they want to argue the necessity of the law for sanctification. And what do legalists fear about this phrase? We are under grace. What are they scared of? What are they concerned about? What they're concerned about is no one can live a godly life without rules. What can restrain them, Paul? This is like asking for all the traffic lights to be removed. You're asking for chaos, Paul. Surely, Paul, Christians need more stop signs and more speed limit posts. They don't understand, though, the power of grace. Legalists don't understand a believer doesn't need more rules after receiving a new heart in the Holy Spirit. Let me illustrate this, then explain this. Four years ago, we started a ministry called Epic, and I'm so glad to see some of those young men in service even today. And many of them have really become my friend more than just those who I'm witnessing to. We started a ministry called Epic four years ago. And Ken, if you know Ken Berry, he's clever with words. He likes to play with words. And so we made a list of rules called the Code of Epic. It was the rules that they had to follow in order to remain in this building in order to play basketball. If you broke these rules, you could not play basketball. If you fought, you could not play basketball. But something happened. As we continue to minister, as we continue to love, those who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ began to love one another outside of the church. And there was no sign, and there was no rules, and you didn't have to tell them what to do. They automatically started respecting this building and Respecting us. Why? Because when God gets down on the inside, something happens to us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. They had received the new heart and they had received the Holy Spirit. And without any rules outside of the church to tell them what to do, they just did. Therefore, Paul says in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are, uh, we are not under the law? But under grace, by no means. In Paul's mind, it is crazy to think that a Christian would desire to use grace as a license to sin because Christians desire to be holy. We desire to be holy. We're not pressured to be holy. We don't be holy because, because we're going to get in trouble. We, get, we want to be holy because we want to be like our Father. Christians desire holiness. If you don't desire holiness, there's an issue with your heart. Now, Paul will explain why. He makes it real simple. Slaves obey whoever is their master. Look at the verse. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Watch what Paul does. Paul doesn't come at us with anything complicated to explain the Christian restraint from sin. 
He doesn't use quantum physics. Instead, he uses slave and master language. But we must understand how Paul is using this slave and master analogy because a slave and master relationship can work in one or two ways. One is a relationship of obligation where you are forced to serve your master. The second is you willingly choose to serve your master because you love your master. The second one is because we love our master. And I believe Paul is talking regarding the latter. We either serve God out of love or we serve sin out of love. I'll let that sit for a minute. We either serve God out of love or we serve sin out of love. Paul is dealing with a hard issue. But here's the thing. We cannot serve two masters. We will either love God and hate sin or we will love sin and hate God. You cannot love them both. You cannot say you love Jewish people and say you love the Holocaust. You will either love one or you will hate the other. You cannot love them both. You have to make a decision. You have to make a choice. But here's the thing. God and sin are diametrically opposed. Remember what Jesus said? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that principle spreads across all kinds of categories, not just money. Friends, it is simple. We will either love sin or hate God. Now, many of us in the room might say, well, next you know I'm riding with God. God, my homeboy, God over sin any day. I'll choose God any day over sin. Come on, man, that's a no-brainer. Why would I choose anything else over God? But hold fast before you come to that conclusion. Because what we serve is both the identification of what we love and the verification of who's our master. I'm going to say that again. What we serve is both the identification of what we love and the verification of who's our master. In other words, Paul is saying, if you want to know who you belong to, just watch who you obey. And you can be sure whatever you obey is the very thing that has your heart. What does Jesus say earlier in Matthew 6, 21? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever I love, that's where I am. Whatever I love, that's where my money flows towards. Whatever I love, that's where my time flows. You cannot say you love God and your time and your money and your obedience all flow towards sin. This life isn't about can we follow rules more than, what can, more than who can our hearts follow. Friends, let's be real. Let's be honest. Now, come on, be real. Now, let's take them church masks off for a second. I'm going to go back. I'm going to take you back, way back. 
way back. You know, let's go back for a minute because, you know, we get in church and we get amnesia and we don't know what nobody's talking about. And when we talk about sin and things like that. But before, I'm talking about before salvation, before you came to the cross, before you were lifting up your hands, before you were shouting hallelujah, before you were running around in church. Do you remember how sin had you in its grips? Do you remember that thing that you used to struggle with? And no matter how hard you tried to get away from it, it seemed to have a restraint on you. It seemed to have a stronghold on you. You tried to kick the thing, but every time you kicked it, it will rise up on you and body slam you. Before we came to God, we were serving sin. Y'all remember Jafar? Y'all like, who in the world is Jafar? Y'all remember Aladdin? Anybody remember Aladdin in here? Y'all remember the magic carpet? Little magic carpet floating around with the little lamp? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 so Jafar was the master of genie. And how did we know who genie's master was? Whoever genie obeyed was his master. And Jafar would, would ask genie anything. Whatever Jafar wanted, genie did. Jafar said jump. Genie said how high. Jafar said run. And uh, Jafar said run. And genie said how far. And Jafar kept him in that little lamp. And every time he rubbed that lamp, genie will come up and do whatever Jafar wanted. Now you may be looking down at genie, but let me come to your address. You remember seeing said run. And you said how far. Seeing said jump. And you said how high. Genie he had you in that little bottle telling you to do whatever it wanted you to do. We all had a Jafar in our life. Oh, Jafar was a cruel master. Oh, Jafar didn't treat us right. And whatever that Jafar was, was our all-consuming goal of our lives. It didn't matter what it cost us. Jafar came in many forms. If it was money, then passion of your life became money. If it was pride, then the passion of your life became pride. If it was sex, then sex became your master. And how far would we go to serve our Jafar? Well, according to verse 15, we were willing to go unto death. And don't make no bones about it. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. And I'll pause there because perhaps somebody's in the room that's playing with sin. Stop playing with it. It will kill you. That's all that it wants to do. It's like that black widow spider. The guy goes in. I ain't trying to bring back no past memory, so just leaving it at the spider, all right? The spider goes in. He goes into the web. He gets what he wants. And then she kills him in the end. Sin kills you in the end. Stop playing with it. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who's rescued us from Jafar. He's rescued us from that. I'm so glad to be rescued from Jafar. I'm so glad to be rescued from sins, lies, and deceitfulness. I'm so glad that God rescued me from Jafar. But why did he rescue me? Christians obey God because God is their master. Look at the verse. But thanks be to God 
that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, something has happened to us. Something has happened to those epic guys. Something had happened to those Roman Christians. Something had happened to Paul himself. But what happened, whatever has happened to them, Paul looks to God and he gives the glory to God. Paul thanks God for the sovereign grace that was shown to the Roman Christians in bringing them out of slavery into salvation, which is found in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the power of Jafar. And friends, we owe it all to God. Can we pause for a minute? Like Paul in the middle of his writing, it is as if Paul has broken out into a doxology. He considers his life. He considers his slavery. And he begins to give praise to God. God, it costs God everything to set us free. It costs him everything, Christian, to set you free. And cause God everything to set you free. Do you remember when the Israelites were in Egypt and, and God came up to Pharaoh through Moses and he said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? Oh, no, I will not let your people go. And God said, well, bring it on. And what did God send? He sent frogs. He sent locusts. He sent the deaf angel until he let his people go. But when it came to our salvation, God didn't send frogs. He didn't send roaches. He didn't send flies. He didn't send bugs. He sent the Son of God himself in the flesh. God said, I'm going to free him myself. Right around Matthew chapter 2, he got up in human flesh. I'm talking about the bread of life. I'm talking about the living water, the one who is and is to come. If you knew it the way that I knew it, you'll be standing to your feet. You'll be giving him praise. Because God didn't leave it to Abraham. He didn't leave it to Moses. He said, I'm going to do this thing myself. Because sin ain't greater than me. Death ain't greater than me. Darkness not greater than me. There's nothing that's greater than me. I'm going to do it myself. Oh, he showed up and he showed out. And he put a whooping on death in sin. Do you remember how he freed Nicodemus? Do you remember how he freed the woman at the well? Do you remember how he freed Zacchaeus, the little old man that climbed up in the tree? He seen Jesus. He called him to him. But by the time he left Jesus, he was a new man. By the time the woman at the well came to Jesus, she came. She went to the well. She just wanted some water. But by the time she left the Son of Man, she had living water. Where? Down in her soul, down in her heart, down in our being. Friends, but when God released the people of Egypt, I mean the Israelites out of Egypt, why did he release them? He makes it clear. I freed you so that you may worship me. I gave you your freedom so that you may worship me. I freed you from pornography so that you may worship me. I freed you from pride so that you may worship me. I freed you from anger so that you may what? 
worship me. When God drowned Pharaoh and all of his enemies, he did it so that it's, I'm trying to preach it like I feel it. He did it so that his people, they worship him. God freed your enemy. God freed you from your enemies and drowned them in the sea so that you may worship. You ought to lift your hands every now and again. You ought to lift your, open up your mouth every now and again. You ought to stand in your feet. You ought to shake your head and say, I can't believe that he did what he did. When I think about all that he's brought me through, I can't help but give him glory because he's done so much. Y'all don't mind if I get a little happy. He's done so much. I remember the wretch I used to be. I remember the sin I used to be. So excuse me if I go up. Excuse me if I twirl a little bit. Excuse me if I dance a little bit. But you don't understand the devils that I was fighting. You don't understand the sin that I was going through. You don't understand the marriage that I was in. But when he freed me and I passed through the Red Sea, I got my joy back. I got my peace back. I got my praise back. Everything that the devil took from me, I got it back. Come on, y'all can give God praise for that. Hold on. I got a little bit more. Y'all sit down real fast. So check it out. We know that we, know that we have been set free from sin because Paul makes a contrast. He said, he talks about, y'all remember, a B.C. and an A.D. Let me explain. This B.C. is before your deliverance. A.D. is after your deliverance. In B.C., we were slaves to sin. But now in A.D., we have become obedient from the heart and are slaves of righteousness. What has happened? Why doesn't sin have power over us <coughs> anymore? Look back up at verse 14. <clears throat> For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The reason sin doesn't have power over the believer in his or her everyday life is because we are under grace and not under the law. You see, in our B.C., we were under the law. But in our A.D., we are under grace. Look at the timeline. Now, what's the difference between grace and law? Come up real close and listen because this is critical. This is what legalists don't understand. To be under the law means law-keeping is the way we will provide a righteousness that lets us stand before God. Are you with me this morning? We try to live a, a righteous life in our human effort under the law. It's all on me. I got to do this. I got to produce this. I got to do it in my own human effort. But here's the problem. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you do, it'll never be enough righteousness for God. And you can never overcome sin. So no matter how hard we try in our human effort to fight sin, sin continues to win and exercise dominion over us because sin is stronger than us. And that you remember, you remember WWF, uh, whenever The Rock would get somebody right by the neck, they called that the what? The Rock Bottom. Seeing every time we tried to get away, seeing to be like, 
and rock bottom us every time. A stone cold stunner us every time. Sit down. Where you think you going? Stay in your BC. But now, I crossed over to my AD. And now I'm under grace. Hold your seatbelts. Grace works different than the law. The law tells you what you need to do. But grace don't only tell you what to do. It gives you the power to do. The reason we're victorious over sin in our everyday lives, in our AD, is we are under grace. And the beautiful thing about being under grace is that God is on my side. In my BC, I showed up by myself. But in my AD, in my BC, I showed up by myself. But in my AD, I show up with God. So bring it on, sin. If God be for me, then who can be against me? God is fighting for me now. So the thing that used to destroy me, the thing that used to have power over me, God is fighting with me. And God is stronger and bigger and better and more powerful than sin. One of the things that God does for us under grace, watch this, is he graciously gives us a new heart. I figured some of you wouldn't believe me, so I brought my homeboy Ezekiel to help me out. Ezekiel, speak to him. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. And I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Do you see that, church? God in salvation does more than just alter your mind. He actually gives you a new heart. Ezekiel goes on and explains why the new heart is actually important. Look at verse 20. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, God does a work on the inside so that we might be obedient on the outside. But not only that, not only does he give us a new heart, he also gives us his Holy Spirit. This thing keeps getting better and better and better. I'm trying to contain myself because I want to, I want, when I shout, I want y'all to shout with me, but I want us to shout because of the truth that we're hearing. So watch this. He gave you a new heart, but not only that, he gives you a Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of the chapters to come. In chapter 8, he says this. Watch it carefully. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of what? Sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's B.C. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Where? In us who walk not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit, friends, God has put a spirit in you so that Jafar will no longer be your boss, so that Jafar will no longer beat you up. Friends, we needed something more than our schemes. We needed something more than our power. I love the way Pastor Charlie Dace illustrates this. He talks about Pi-Pi the Sailor Man. Anybody remember Pi-Pi in the room? Y'all remember Pi-Pi the Sailor Man? Y'all remember that joker right there? Ooh, Papa was a bad boy, wasn't he? Papa was bad. I love, I love, I love Papa. I love Papa. But you know something that I agree with Charlie Dates? He said that Papa taught him something. 
Y'all remember his girlfriend? Y'all remember Olive Oil? Go for Olive Oil. Y'all remember Olive Oil? Oh, Olive Oil. Now, I got, to, I, got to, I, I got to agree with him on this one. I don't know what Papa's seen in Olive Oil. I don't know. You know, she's just not my type of girl, but that's all right. But Papa was loyal to his girl. But y'all remember Papa, he had, he had an arch enemy. Y'all remember his name? Big, big Brutus, big, big Burley. Y'all right there, big Brutus, big Brutus. One episode, Bruto or whatever. You know what? I looked it up online, and it's two different names, depending on when you look at it. Bruto. Okay, so Bruto, whatever, that guy right there. That guy right there, I'm just going to refer to him as that, that guy right there until after service we clear this thing up. And so, and so, and so that guy right there would, would beat up on Papa so bad. One episode, he uppercut Papa. Papa went flying over towns and cities and restaurants, and Papa would just fly back and he'll land on his back. And that guy right there would pick up Papa and just clean restaurant tables with Papa. But we didn't watch Papa to see him get beat up. After a while, Papa would say, me have taken all that me can take. Me can take no more. And out of nowhere on his belt buckle, there'll be a can of spinach. And he'll pop that thing, and that spinach will go up, and it'll go down in Popeye. And Popeye will start bubbling up. And the thing that was beating up on Popeye, Popeye start beating up on it. The thing that was facing Popeye, Popeye start facing it, and he will beat him up. I came to tell you, Christian, that something has got down on the inside of you. So the thing that was beating you up no longer has to beat you up anymore. You say, Dexter, where's my spinach? I point to nothing else than the Word of God. Because when the Word gets down on the inside, all of a sudden, I got power I never had. I got power I never I never experienced before. Pornography under me. Lust under me. Anger under me. Pride under me. You better start eating your spinach and getting it down on the inside. So when the devil walks up to you, you got power to hit back with. You got power to jab back with. You become a skilled Holy Spirit boxer. I came to tell you that when God is down on the inside, sin better watch out. Satan, better watch out. There's something about when spinach gets down on the inside. Let that co-worker that used to get on my nerves don't get on my nerves anymore. When the spinach get down on the inside, that person who cut me off, I used to cuss them out. But now I got something powerful in the inside. When spinach got down, I used to be jealous. And I used to covet, but now that spinach has got down on the inside. You, you, sometimes I got to go in the mirror and just look at myself and say, God has done something different. I got to take a lunch break. I should have cussed them out. I should have went off. I should have lost my mind, but I ain't did it yet. Something about when spinach gets down on the inside. But this is all good and dandy and beautiful that we have had something happen to us. We've been set free from Jafar. We transition from a BC to an AD. We have our spinach. We know the gospel. We have salvation. 
What ought we do with all of this, Christian, now that you have been set free? I have one application point. Christians ought to live for God. Christians ought to live for God. Look at that last verse. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just, watch this, you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Friends, Paul makes it clear in our last verse that as believers, we should not have one foot in A.D. and one foot in B.C. God is calling us to come all the way over to B.C. We gave our bodies over to sin. But now that we are in our A.D., we ought to give our bodies over to God. Friends, you ask, pastor, preacher man, whatever your name is, to what degree should we give ourselves over to God? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul makes it clear, with the same intensity, we gave ourselves over to sin. You didn't casually give yourself over to sin. You gave yourself all the way over to sin. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And when I did it, I did. You remember the kind girl, we're going to set a club up tonight. Oh, yeah, they're going to know who we are before we leave. I wonder if we can start talking like that now as Christians. We need... Now, with the same intensity, commit ourselves to God. Why? Because this life is not our own. We belong to God. It is the Christian's delight to serve God. This is not forced slavery. We have been set free. But we use our freedom to serve God. Friends, this is what Fannie Lou Hamer understood. This is what William Tyndale understood and Paul understood. That they were set free to give their lives over to God. They were obedient and they were submissive. But I must admit, sometimes when I look at the all-stars of the faith, when I look at Fannie Lou and I look at William Tyndale and I look at Paul, and I look at Dexter Harris' life, and I compare my life to them, I say to myself, I wonder if I'm even saved. I wonder if I even love God. Is there anybody in the room you ever compared your Christianity to somebody else's Christianity? When I look at Paul and I read Paul and I see his dedication and commitment, sometimes I get just a little bit jealous and I say, I wonder if God can even use me. And some of you may be thinking in your minds right now, as I consider what I did this past week, as I consider what I did last night, I wonder if I'm even saved. But I came to tell you, and I said this before that this past October I started going to the gym I started working out and when I got there I got to tell you when I looked around and I started comparing myself to all the big burly guys up in there with all the muscles and things like that and seeing them lift weights and I got to admit one guy he had three three plates each three plates of 45 I tried to get it up off the bar but I couldn't get it up off the bar and he was just lifting it like this and I said I wish I could do that I wish I could do that you know I just wish I could and so but when I seen that, I wanted to give up. But friends, and I ain't saying that I can lift that because I still can't. But what I'm saying is, 
is that the more I kept going to the gym, the stronger I became, the more weight started to come off of me. The more I was able to lift. I came to tell you, Christian, keep showing up to church. Keep praying. Keep reading your word. And you're going to get stronger and bigger and better. And the thing that's been overcoming you, you're going to be able to overcome it. Don't give up. But here's the thing. I looked around the gym, and what I noticed is that everybody was in a different category. You had skinny people, swole people, overweight people, not so skinny people, not so big people. You had all of them. And you know what was the main goal in the room? The main goal was to get fit. And I'll leave you with this. The main goal for the Christian is to become like Jesus. There ain't nobody who submits to God and gives slavery to God like Jesus Christ. This is what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God of things to be grasped, but empty himself by taking the form of a servant. Look at your Savior, church, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.